Thank you, worship team. It was a great time worship, worshiping God in song, and it's great to see you guys all here this morning. The air was heavy with anticipation as the courtroom filled, and it was a hot summer's day, and even hotter in this packed courtroom. And a 13-year-old boy sat with sweaty palms and churning stomach, and he was nearly ready to cry as he waited for his coming sentencing. See, he was issued a ticket for trespassing and climbing in an undesignated area at the Garden of the Gods. He was with a family friend three years younger than him, and they had climbed down and gotten into a tight crevice, and the younger boy was over the top of the older one, and he got to a spot where he couldn't go down any further and so needed to go up. And the younger boy said, no, I can't go up. And so he he sat there for a while, and then finally, after exhaustion, just dropped and fell, and fell nearly 20 feet. And that's why the younger boy's leg was broken and fell into a high spot in the rocks some 300 feet above the ground. And now the older boy in desperation did not know what to do because his younger friend had a broken leg. So he went around crying desperately for help for hours. And finally, after a while, the fire department got up to him and took him and took the the younger boy and lowered him down off of this ledge to the ground to safety. It made this older boy climb down with the fire department. Well, that stunt earned me a thousand hours of community service and my first appearance in court. So how many guys have been in court before? All right, not a fun place to be typically, right? It wasn't fun for me on that day. But today we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. And there's a lot of misconceptions about this judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to get into those today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Danny Evans. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And last week we talked about the certainty of eternity. And talking with Gary Cooper this week, he talked to some friends of theirs and they had a little seven-year-old, and they're talking about Jan being in heaven, and and the the mother of the seven-year-old was sad, and the the seven-year-old said, well, don't be sad, because heaven is better than Chuck E. Cheese's. (laughs) So that was a great story. Well, we started off last week at the end of chapter 4 and looked at verses 16 through 18 briefly, and these verses really set the tone, right, for all of chapter 5. As we talked about the temporal things, the uh, things that we see on a day-to-day basis are temporary. And the things that are eternal are things that we don't see. And as I was watching Polar Express for the millionth time this week, as it's probably going to be on every day, I think, from now till Christmas, but I caught a line in there and they said, the conductor looked at the kids and he said, you know, the things that are unseen are sometimes much more real than the things that we see. And so it's kind of interesting how God will plug a little bit of truth into some of these movies. Verse 18 says that in chapter 4. It says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this verse really gives us the reason why Paul and his companions did not lose heart. And that was chapter 4. His companions did not lose heart in the midst of all the trials and afflictions they were going through because they knew This world was temporary. They knew that everything in this world will burn. It will go away someday. It is not permanent. 
Yet our resurrection body is permanent. It'll last forever. And chapter 5 really goes into that. And it starts with the affirming phrase, for we know, for we know. Paul acknowledged that they knew for certain of their eternal destination. And that's what the first eight verses were really all about. That certainty of eternity, the certainty of knowing where they're going to go when they die and receiving this heavenly glorified body, one without sin, one where we can worship God and have an intimate relationship with him without hindrances. And that is where we talked about why we groan or we long for this heavenly body. And really there's two reasons for this longing. Is One is to get rid of this sin-ridden flesh suit, this carcass that we walk around in every day. We long to get rid of this. And we also long to get that heavenly body someday, to be in the heavenly presence and have our glorified body, that building that was made in heaven as verse 4 talks about. And we finish off last week by talking about why we were created. And Dean talked about that just a little bit. What we were created for is for heaven. We were created for heaven with eternity in mind. And that's where Jan is now. And that's what we're all created for. And to be longing for that time to be with God. And finally, we ended with how. That assurance. How do we know? How do we know for certain that heaven exists? And how do we know that we'll be with Christ forever? And how do we know that we'll really get this glorified new body? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit that God gives us at salvation tells us. It affirms to us that truth of the things that are unseen, the eternal things. It's the one that tells us inside about what's happening in the supernatural versus the natural. And the bottom line is that takes faith, right? Talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that faith is being sure of what we've hoped for and certain of what we do not see. So faith is being sure of or confident in the unseen world, that which is eternal. And today we're going to continue on that theme of faith. Verse 7 is really our main verse today, that we as believers and followers of Christ, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so that is our theme verses for most of us as Christians. We walk by faith. Our life is about faith and what is unseen and what is eternal. Today we're going to see how Paul and his companions walked by faith and not by sight and how they had confidence in the sovereignty of God, and that whether they stayed here on this earth or they went to heaven, that they were going to glorify God in whatever they did. And today we're going to conclude with the judgment seat of Christ. And I know this term brings fear and terror to many people, and I think it's really because of a lot of ignorance that we really don't understand the judgment seat of Christ. And there's going to be a lot to it, and we're going to try to get to that today as we look at that verse, verse 10. If you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Please stand as I read it aloud, and you can read it along silently. Starting in verse 6, it says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak in and through me today. Judgment seat of Christ is a serious topic. And I pray that your word would speak into our hearts about what it's all about. And that we may know clearer and have a better understanding of what it's about. So, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be here in a supernatural way. Lord, there's a lot of distractions, a lot of things going on in this world. pray we could just take this short time to focus in on your word and, and let your spirit work in our lives and that you would speak to us and change us and convict us and conform us in your image, that we would set our mind not on things on this earth but things in heaven and that we can encourage one another with love and good deeds as we go forth into this Christmas season and be salt and light into this world. In your name, amen. All right, you may be seated. The first thing we're going to look at is, the first topic is about courage, having courage for today. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 starts off by talking about courage. And courage really is that ability to face great dangers and challenges without retreating. And this is a constant theme that Paul uses throughout his epistles. He's always reminding the church not to lose heart as he did in chapter 4. He's telling them to be of good courage here in chapter 5, to be sure, to have confidence. So why did he repeat this so much? Why was he always repeating this to the, the church, to believers? I submit to you because he knew the power of Satan. And what Satan is trying to do to believers is to attack their faith, to attack their confidence, to attack their certainty of eternity in things they can't see. And so he says, be of good courage. And when this world thinks of courage, we think of someone going off like a triple black diamond or going backcountry skiing in avalanche-prone zones or something. That's usually what we think is courageous in this world. But courage really is is saying no to temptation and fleeing when temptation comes along. I think real courage is standing alongside your wife for 28 months and watching her fight cancer. That's real courage. I think this passage from verse 1 through verse 8 really gives us a glimpse into what Paul's preference was for his life and for his life to come in heaven. See, Paul's first preference was for Jesus to come back, for the second coming of Christ to occur so that he would be clothed, right? We talked about that last week, that he would be clothed and not be found naked so that he would receive his glorified body. See, that won't happen until Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes again, all believers will receive their glorified body. So that's Paul's first preference. Now, Paul's second, if that wasn't going to occur, and only the Lord knows, only God the Father knew when that was happened. So his second preference we see here is in verse 8. His second preference is to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. So Paul would rather go up to heaven, even though he wouldn't have his body right away. His second preference really is just to be with the Lord. I submit to you that in the present heaven, though, that we will have some kind of intermediate body. And I talked about this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there is scriptural support that we will have some kind of a body, that it won't be our final resurrected body, but we will have some kind of intermediate body. So if you're interested in that, you can go online, and there's a message I have about that on the present heaven. And now Paul's final preference, though, is to remain here on earth in his earthly tent, in his body here on earth. 
Now let's look on to verse 9. He says, though, no matter what state he was in, his ambition was to please God. He and his companions wanted to please God. And notice he says, therefore, we, meaning him and all his friends, also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to God. So the next point is our goal really is to please God. Last week, verse 5 referred to our purpose as followers of Christ was to glorify God and to really have heaven in mind. And so now we see in verse 5, though, is even though we have heaven in mind, while we are here on this earth, it's to please him. And this verse starts off with a therefore. So what are we to ask when we see a therefore? What's a therefore? What's a therefore? Right. What is the therefore, therefore? And I saw an interesting illustration. There was a preacher that did a sermon, and a lady came up afterwards, and she said, Wow, Pastor, that was just a great sermon if it wasn't for all those therefores and wherefores in there. And that's just to point out that, you know, these therefores and wherefores are really what Paul puts in there to transition the truth into practical application. Practical application. And so what Paul's doing here is he's he's looking at the truths from verses 1 through 8 of knowing that God will take care of us whether we're in this body or out of this body, whether we're present with the Lord or we're absent from the Lord. He will always be with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And so we're to take great courage in that truth. Now, based on all that truth, let's apply that to your lives here on earth. You're here on earth. You're going to be here on earth in the body for a while. How should we live, practically live it out? And he's saying we should live this out is to please God. So knowing that is our goal, how will this apply in our lives here on earth? Our ambition or our goal here is to please God. So when you think of ambition, what really comes to mind? Usually in this world, when you think of ambition, right, you think of someone like Donald Trump, or you think of Bill Gates or or Tiger Woods or some famous sports star. That's typically what we think of in the United States as someone who's ambitious, is someone who has a goal in mind. And it doesn't matter what it takes to achieve it. They have the blinders on, and they're going to achieve that. It doesn't matter if they trample on people's lives or whatever it takes, they are going to achieve that goal. They are ambitious. And so for us as Christians, we kind of look as ambition as being kind of selfish, in fact, really selfish. And so we think of, as Christians, well, we shouldn't really be ambitious. That's not something that's good. It's not something a Christian does. But we see here that that's the opposite for, for Paul, that he really had an opposite. He didn't have a worldly ambition, but he had a godly ambition. He had an ambition to please God. And Paul's motivation in his mission really was what? It was to go on a mission to the Gentiles, to preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-Jews. And so he had a godly ambition to do that. And he got out of his comfort zone of being in Jerusalem, where he could hang out with his homies at the Sanhedrin. And he went on mission to a foreign land. So why did he go on a mission to a foreign land? Why did he get out of his comfort zone? Well, it was to please God. And that should really be our highest ambition And Paul uses this frequently in other places. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I know many starting preachers, the way they help you get through those first sermons is to picture an empty seat and to picture Jesus in that seat as if you're preaching to an audience of one, that you're preaching just to please God and to please Jesus. And some way you might be going, well, that's kind of selfish. He's blowing us all off. He's just preaching to one person. But isn't that the way we should live our lives every day? We should live our lives to please God and Jesus alone. Because when we do that, we'll glorify Him in our lives. And that's the way Paul lived. In in 1 Corinthians, we talked about this in chapter 4. He said, "I, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. My goal is to, to please God and to live for an audience of one. And that's how we should live our lives. We should live our lives to please God and live for an audience of one. You know, another example of this is with our children. When you ask your children to do something and you ask them and they actually obey on the first time and say, yes, mommy, I would be glad to do that for you. Well, after you pick yourself off the ground... You're pleased, right? You're well pleased. You're like, wow, that was amazing. They did what I said I asked them to do. And so you're pleased. And the same thing is true with God. If, if, we, if we turn from temptation when it comes in front of us, if our behavior is that which is obedient to God, then it's well pleasing to Him. Examples of if we go into an area and there's conversation that's gossip and slanderous, and if we choose not to enter that conversation, or on the Internet if we see an ad for women's lingerie or something, we choose not to click on those things. Those things are well-pleasing to God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about that it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. Our obedience is a sweet aroma to the Lord. So we know that our goal, our ambition is to live a life that's pleasing to God. But why? What, what is our motivation there to live a life well-pleasing to God? Well, that is in verse 10. Verse 10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So what pops into your mind when I say judgment seat of Christ? Well, if you're like most of us, kind of freaks you out, right? It's kind of scary. I mean, when you think about judgment seat, you think about court and what it's like in court, and it's usually not fun in court. I was recently in court because I do not like to pay my tickets. I like to fight them. And so I went for a couple of parking tickets, and I went in there, and you go in the courtroom, and man, it's tense, right? It's really tense. People are like, man, I hope I get off on this or at least the Lord sends or I'm not going to have a license. And, you know, and there's a lot of tension in these courtrooms. And if you've been in the courtroom in Windsor, it's kind of a small courtroom. And, but it's like most courtrooms. You've got the, everyone, all us peons down there fighting for our lives and our sentencing. And then you've got another stage where the witnesses have to go up to and stand on. And then some other a little higher. And then you've got what at the top is who? The judge, right? The judge is sitting front and center, higher than everyone else. And so that's what this is talking about here, and that's the judgment seat. 
the Bema Seat as it's translated. And it's usually raised up and higher. And in Greek cities, it was, it was a platform is raised up and higher, usually in the middle of the city. And usually the, the rulers of the day would come to the judgment or the Bema Seat and they would make a ruling. And it was also used in those days in the Olympic Games as the place to give out rewards or the gold medal for the Olympic Games. Also, we, we know it from Scripture that uh, Pilate himself, he sat on the Bema Seat when he gave out the judgment to crucify Christ. So I want to begin as we look at these verses really with some, some observations, some more simpler observations. And then if we have time, I'd like to dig into the deeper issues of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, first of all, it says here that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That means everyone. Every single person, believer, non-believer, will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And next notice that it says we must all appear. It does not say we all be judged. We must all appear. Now this word appear is defined as being to made manifest, to lay bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability and openly reveal the full and true reality of one's character. So we'll be laid bare before Christ. He will know us. He he knows us intimately, and it will be laid bare before us. What he knows about us, and even things we don't know about ourselves, will be revealed at this judgment seat of Christ as we appear before him. Now next we see that our judge will be Christ. Complementary verse to this is Romans chapter 14, where it says we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. But we know in John chapter 5, it says that God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment. And so Jesus will be our judge. Another observation is this will take place following our death. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. So this will happen after we die. And another observation is that believers will not be judged for our sin. Believers will. You will not be judged for your sin. Does that give you some sense of relief? Thank goodness we will not be judged for our sin. And and as we know, our sins will be as far as the east is from the west. We know it. Romans chapter 8 says, For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that Jesus, that while we are still sinners in Romans chapter 5, it says he Christ, he died for us. And we're going to get into this even more in the end of chapter 5, that it talks about that Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice for sin. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So it should give us great relief to know that we will not be judged for our sin. I know that gives me relief. So, what will we be judged on? Well, we'll be examined really upon our sin-neutral activity and It says here in the verse that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now this word here, recompensed, really means to receive back. To receive back what is due, whether in punishment or reward, for the deeds we've done in the body. So much of what we've been talking about and what Paul's been talking about has been focused on heaven 
in receiving our heavenly glorified body. Paul closes out this passage by saying, you know, even though I prefer to be in heaven, even though I prefer to be absent from the body, what I do here on earth matters. What I do here on earth is very important to God. So we have to ask, why? Why is it very important what we do on this earth when really we're destination and purposes for heaven? And really, what is this goal of this judgment? And there's kind of two thoughts of really how the, the goal of this judgment comes out. This goal of this judgment, for one, is it going to be to really measure our rewards and what we get in heaven and reward us for what we do in the flesh here on earth? Or is this goal really to determine who is really a genuine follower of Christ, who will be, who is saved and who is lost? You know, there's many scriptures on this, and I submit to you to study them on your own or in a community group. But I submit to you one of the best understandings of, of this to help us understand and answer those questions is in the parable of the talents. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is the parable of the talents, verses 12 through 27. For some context, this is occurring just before Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so the kingdom of heaven is the topic. And Jesus uses this story or this parable of the talents. And it's really an illustration of what Jesus is going to do himself, that he is going to leave this earth and he's going to return back. And so as an example of that, he uses a nobleman. And he talks about this nobleman who leaves to go become king and then return. And when he leaves, he takes ten of his servants, he brings them around, and he gives each one of them a mina or a talent. And as part of his inheritance, he gives them this. And so he gives his ten servants that, and then he leaves and goes away. And then he comes back, and he comes back as king, and he really wants to find out what each one of these servants does with their talents. The first one comes to him. There's really just three that come back. And the first one comes back, and... He comes and he says, Master, what I've done is I've taken your one and, and I've invested it and I've made it into ten. And so the master, the king says, Well done, good servant. And because you have been faithful in very little, you are to be in authority over ten cities. And then the other one comes up and he comes up and he, take, he said, Master, I've taken your one talent and I have turned that into five. And he says, very good, and you shall be in charge of five cities. And now the last one, we pick it up in in about verse 20. The last servant comes up and in verse 20 says, Master, here is your mina or talent, which I kept and put in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man and take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And so the king says to him, By your words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? And then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? And then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And so I think, really, this is one of many examples in Scripture of what it will be like at the judgment seat that 
This really teaches that there are varying degrees, I think, of reward for our faithfulness in our lives. What about this last guy that did nothing? He takes his one talent and he just hides it away. And there are varying interpretations of what talents are, but really it's really our opportunity, I think, to further the kingdom. That's what it's about. For, for the other two, they took that opportunity and they expanded the kingdom tenfold and fivefold. But for this one man, he decided he wasn't going to take that opportunity. He wasn't going to even expand the kingdom even a little bit. And he hid his talent away, his mind away. I submit to you that this person is like those people that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7, that though they did all these things in his name, they really did not know Christ personally. Basically, these are the people that claim to be Christians, but by their actions, they deny him. They're the complacent Christian, the, the play-it-safe Christians, not willing to go out and take any risks, not willing to be persecuted for his namesake, not willing to stand up for Christ. They're the posers, the fake Christians. These are the people that as long as it is in or popular, they'll become a Christian. But when times get difficult or tough, they're the ones that are going to tuck tail and run. I went to Dare to Share conference this year, and on Friday night they had a end times scenario to the kids. And it was kind of like the judgment seat. It was kind of a scenario in the United States, and you can basically see this happening, that what happened, they say, is that the terrorist attacks started coming into the U.S., and they came in at a rapid pace. As a backlash to that, there was a vigilante group of so-called Christians that went on at the attack on these people to take out the terrorists on their own. And so in order to create a sense of peace, the U.S. government intervened, and they brought these people to the table, and, and they basically made said, we need to make a peace pact. And this peace pact basically said there can be no more of these different religions, that everyone has to bow and have allegiance to the United States of America and pledge allegiance just to the U.S. And they can no longer have allegiance to any of their gods or any of their religious beliefs. And so the story goes about these three kids that come down and they are in jail because they're so-called Christians. They're the ones that aren't going to take this pledge. And their impending sentencing is to come and the people are going to come and they're basically going to ask them this question. Do you pledge allegiance to the United States? Will you sign this pact? And if not, they would be shot. Well, as the story went, two of them signed the pact, but one kid stood out for Christ and said, no, I'm not going to pay allegiance to the U.S. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ and him alone. And he died for that. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. It was very impactful, very impactful skit. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, he says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. So I ask you today, are you ashamed of him? Are you ashamed of Jesus? What will Jesus say to you on the judgment day? Will he say, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. Or will it be like Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Depart from me, you evildoer, for I never knew you. If it's a later I, it's not too late. You're here today by no mistake. God is a God of second chances, and he is here calling you to know him, to know him personally, to do a U-turn in your life and to turn from living your life for yourself and to put your faith in Christ and to not be that, that man that didn't do anything with his talents. But you can go from here today and shine and share the love of Jesus Christ right here, right now. If you can just put your faith in him who died for your sins and rose again. You can show also the signs of genuine faith like those men that gave one talent and turned it into ten and turned it into five. Show those deeds that show the true fellowship and following of Christ. You can do that today. For believers, I hope this gives you more understanding what this seed is like, that that you go before the judgment seat of Christ and your life will be laid bare. But it will be a place of reward. That Jesus will reward you for all your efforts you've done in the body here on earth. And that it will be a time where you will grow in closer intimacy to God and union with Him. For those of you who don't know Him, it will be a great time of terror and fear. It will be a time where Jesus said you will be cast out from his presence, where there are weeping of gnashing of teeth. And that's a tough thing to talk about, but it's true and it's a reality. Even on Christmas as we look towards Christmas, it's true. And so God has opened his hands to you that don't know him, to know the baby in a manger who became a man and who, who lived a perfect life and died a gruesome death to pay for your sins so that you can have eternal life. And he's calling you to know him, to bow your knee to him and to turn from living from your life, your life for yourself and to live for him. So let's pray. Father God, Lord, the judgment seat of Christ is a serious thing. And Lord, I don't know if we fully envelop the true magnitude of it. And even in the short time and looking at these verses, if we could truly understand the magnitude of it. But Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today that anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, they would turn of living a life for themselves and, and put their faith and trust in you so that when they do go to the judgment seat of Christ, you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Lord, for us that know you, I pray this would encourage us to live all the more for you, to serve you all the more. We would not look for rewards here on earth, but we would store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. So Lord, I pray that's an encouragement for one another that we would go out in this Christmas season as we go into Christmas parties and spending time with neighbors and friends and people at work and that we would declare the true Christ of Christmas is not just a baby in a manger, but he's reigning king and he's reigning Lord and he's coming back again. And Lord, that we would live our lives as if tomorrow could be our last. We would live our lives and set our mind on things above. And we'll know that there's a certainty to eternity and that which we don't see is much more real, really, than that which we see because it's things that are permanent, things that will last forever. 
So I pray that you'd speak to us today in your precious name. Amen.